Hey, it's your boy, and welcome to episode 58 of the podcast, This Is M, which you can subscribe to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Everywhere you find good podcasts, you'll find this one. Take a minute, rate and review us, give us five stars, type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others will also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would like it, send them your favorite episode. Well, uh, a quick update... Uh, well, is it an update? I don't know what you call it, but a quick update uh, on the last episode, which was actually uh, really fun for me to record. Um, I know we always sit down and we're not quite sure what we're going to talk about, and then sometimes I just sort of sit down and, I don't know, the rocket sort of takes off, and before I know it, the episode's over. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, I really enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed last week's episode, and I heard from some of you that you liked it also, so... Um, I guess in some ways that kind of puts pressure on me to sort of put up again for the next week. I don't know. It should encourage me, but I think it puts more pressure on me, honestly. But there were a couple things, you know, as I was talking about that, that as I sort of reflected on our conversation, there were some things I I wish I had mentioned. Uh, But first, I guess a follow-up, which is uh, I was discussing last week that, you know, one of the biggest inspirations for this podcast is the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, which I had listened to. Uh, for a while, and uh, especially when I was on my last sort of follow-up tour before, um, I guess, going into school full-time, you know, I would listen to the Brett Easton Ellis podcast for sometimes, you know, eight hours a day, and uh, it just sort of disappeared, and uh, I was already listening to old episodes, but um, probably hadn't heard it for about a, you know, I hadn't seen any new episodes for a couple years, but I didn't know that the podcast was actually continuing on Patreon, and when I found it last week, I was over the moon, and uh, I first heard this free episode that was a conversation between Brett Easton Ellis and Chuck Palahniuk, who's the author of Fight Club, among other books, but Fight Club is probably the most famous. And I was saying that it was strange for me to be listening to a podcast of two people who I'm surprised to be as impressed by them as I am, because I read both of these authors' most famous books, Fight Club uh, for Chuck Palahniuk and American Psycho for Brett Easton Ellis, and I didn't like either book, honestly, when I read it. Um, I was especially underwhelmed by, actually, I would say I was kind of underwhelmed by both equally, if I'm being frank, but, um, and yet both books have been turned into uh, what I thought were really incredible movies. Definitely Fight Club, I think is, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'd say it's, I don't know, I guess it, is it a masterpiece? It it probably is. It's, It's just one of those movies that the more you watch it, the deeper it gets, and and I don't know, maybe this will come up later, but I also feel like on, on some level it's it's very much misunderstood. Or at least I think the way that people normally refer to it or, or their, I don't know, the way that people continue to sort of point to it and reference it, I, I think they're kind of missing the larger point. Um, and I'm wondering if that comes up in today's conversation because uh, one of the things I was identifying that was sort of felt fortuitous to me was my brother had recommended that I read Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, um, which I had read years ago. I read it when I was seventeen. Um, when I first moved out, you know, to sort of live on my own, I was seventeen years old. I was about to turn eighteen, and uh, I moved into this duplex when I was living in Tucson, Arizona. And it wasn't even really furnished at the time. I think I had like a bed. I had some pieces of furniture that I inherited inherited from my stepfather. Um, not that he passed away. He just gave them to me. And, uh, I remember for most of the summer before I started school, I wasn't working and I would just spend all day reading. And I remember that summer I read pretty much everything by Murakami. I'd started with the wind up bird chronicle and then read everything up into that. 
Um, but I think, you know, because Murakami has this sort of, I don't know, is it sci-fi? It's sort of futuristic, kind of, not even magical realism. I don't know what you call it. Maybe it is just straight-up science fiction, but um, uh, I don't know. Vonnegut just seemed like... Um, I don't know, a natural extension of that, I guess. And so I did read some Vonnegut around that time. I read Slaughterhouse-Five. I read um, Cat's Cradle, Slapstick, and a collection of short stories called Welcome to the Monkey House. And of those, I think Slapstick was probably my favorite. And I remember reading Slaughterhouse-Five and just kind of walking through it and not really understanding it. But my brother had read it uh, recently, really enjoyed it, recommended I read it, and so I ordered a copy. And while that uh, book was en route to me from eBay. I was listening to Chuck Palahniuk and Brett Easton Ellis just sort of extol its virtues and talk about how great it was. So I, among other things that came up in that conversation, you can go back and listen to the last episode if you want, but um, it just felt like I was supposed to be reading that book right now. And uh, I'm so happy I did. I, I probably got it about a week ago Sunday. And when I told my brother this, he said, uh, you know, I'm not saying you're on the spectrum, but you're on a spectrum. Because uh, I got it about seven days ago, and I, and I just finished reading it for the third time yesterday. I read it once through in like two days, and immediately just turned it over and started reading the first chapter again. And I don't think I was intending to reread the whole thing, but once I was like a chapter in, I, I said, well, it's, it, it's a quick read. Just go through it one more time. Um, there are plenty of things I wanted to sort of pick up on and, and, uh, and just see again. And then like two days later, I was at my girlfriend's house, I was sort of getting ready for bed or at least getting ready to lay down for the night. And she was making muffins. And I I finished the book and I said, Hey boo, how much longer do you have on those muffins? She was like, Oh, about 30 minutes. And I was like, well, I don't really want to play candy crush. And so I just flipped it over, started reading it again. And by the time I got to the end of the first chapter, I just decided, all right, well, let's give it a third. Let's just give it a third pass. And Look, if you're looking for something to read, I highly recommend it. Um, And there's a couple things, uh, you know, and and, I mean, honestly, I want to read it a fourth time because there's just so much going on in that novel. And it just goes to show me, uh, and maybe you as well, a couple things. You know, you read books when you're younger, and I guess technically you get to check them off the list. You've read it. Your eyes have passed over the text that's in the book. But there's so much going on in that novel that if you're just not of a certain age, you're just not going to get. And, you know, I don't know if I really want to go into a full synopsis here, but suffice it to say, Slaughterhouse-Five kind of has like a meta narrative going on, which is like uh, the movie Adaptation. Um, I I, I was sort of skewering Charlie Kaufman's latest film, I've Been Thinking of Ending Things. Um, But one movie that he does really well is Adaptation, which is... Uh, Charlie Kaufman's a screenwriter, and uh, you can tell at some point he was commissioned to make a film adaptation of The Orchid Thief. Uh, He clearly was struggling with it, so instead of just adapting uh, the book itself, he wrote a a screenplay about his difficulty adapting the novel. And the first chapter of Slaughterhouse-Five, even though it's fictionalized, it's pretty clear that that it's Vonnegut speaking to the audience about their own experience, uh, saying that you know they were in World War II, they were um, in Dresden at the time of the bombing, um, and as an author, one thing they were working on for so many years was their Dresden novel, and here it is. And what you're about to read is um, you know the best thing they could 
and do with the material that they had. And it wasn't necessarily the novel they set out to write, but here it is. And uh, the second chapter starts with the introduction of Billy Pilgrim, who is, you know, both Vonnegut and somebody else. And Vonnegut even references himself in the narrative of Billy Pilgrim and sort of puts him along, uh, puts himself alongside him at certain points. So, you know, it's not entirely clear if the narrate or the uh, the protagonist Billy Pilgrim is Kurt Vonnegut or a fictionalized version of him. But the plot of Slaughterhouse Five is basically a, a soldier um, who's in World War II. He gets captured by the Germans and it, and is in Dresden when um, uh, when the bombing happens. Uh, after that, he leaves. Uh, uh, he leaves the army. He becomes an optometrist. He marries. He has kids. Um, he has a nervous breakdown at some point. Uh, later, he's in a, a plane crash of which he's the sole survivor, uh, and he kind of loses his marbles a little bit. He's sort of in a convalescent hospital for a while. But uh, at some point in time, he gets abducted by aliens from a from a distant planet called Tralfamador, and they sort of convey this message to him while they're holding him in a zoo, where the uh, the Tralfamadorians, I guess, can sort of observe him. And uh, actually, they have him mate with a porn star or a former porn star that they fly into the planet. But they convey this message to him that um, to Tralfamadorians, time is you know all moments are happening all at once. And that sort of explains the way the narrative is told. Because even though I'm telling you the story linearly, um, the story is actually uh, told bouncing back and forth between all those things. Um, And it's just a, I don't know, it's a beautiful book. And the first time you read it, you know, as you're reading about the war, as you're reading about his latter life, as you're reading about him being on the the planet of (laughs) Tralfamador... There is all these sort of motives that keep coming up, and it could be color references or, or actual sentences that are just repeated in all these circumstances. But, you know, very quickly, um, I don't want to say it's clear, but you understand on some level this idea of getting abducted by these Tralfamadorians is very closely related to being captured by the Germans in World War II. And, you know, both situations are absurd. Um and I guess on top of all this, there's this, I, you know, it's an anti-war novel, um, and there's this sort of life philosophy that comes out of it. You know, every time death is mentioned in the novel, you see this phrase, so it goes. And any time horrific events are described, it's followed by the phrase, and so on. And so there's kind of this apathy that kind of comes out of the novel. And the Tralfamadorians, their their whole life philosophy is, you know, every moment in time is what it is. It's structured that way. There's nothing you can do to change it. And so they exist on this plane where, like, their worldview or their life philosophy is just sort of a radical acceptance of every moment um, being what it is, you know, that uh, every moment of our life is sort of uh, irreversible and there's no point in lamenting it or even trying to change it. And so because Billy Pilgrim is able to exist in, exist in all these moments at the same time, including his eventual encounter with the Tralfamadorians, he's able to sort of narrate this uh, story, having grafted that philosophy on top of it. So, um, I don't think I'm being entirely clear, but the point I'm trying to make is, is the first time you read it, you know, it moves very quickly, all the narration is very compressed, you know, it doesn't uh, get mired in, uh, you know, detailed description. Um, I think I was talking to my brother about it, and he made the great point, which is, you know, Vonnegut sort of trusts you to make connections. You know, he doesn't really go into detail describing relationships or giving you a lot of backstory. You're able to fill in all the gaps just by a couple lines of dialogue. 
And uh, the more you read it, you're sort of surprised how much actually happens in the novel, considering how short it is. Um, and the first time you read it, it just sort of washes over you. And you're going to enjoy it, and that's totally fine. But then the second time you read it, you really see it really is incredible how much of these stories are deeply interconnected. Not just, you know, parallels in terms of the action, but also the way it's written. How many these sort of motivic phrases and color references are just sort of, you know, sort of yin and yang throughout the entire novel. Um, and by the third time, I mean, I just had, you know, I had this sort of system of, of note taking in my text of sort of, you know, sort of marking these motives and just sort of putting check marks in the margin. And it's like, I, I really want to spend some time and make like, a, maybe I'll make like a public uh, Google sheet or something with all these motives sort of typed into them with the page references, because it just goes to show me at least that even for something deceptively simple, like, un, uh, like Slaughterhouse Five, the thing that really separates a great novel from, I guess, anything else or a great piece of art from anything else is the form. And it's just, I don't know, I guess, aside from the story being enjoyable, which is fine, but the, the thing that I really take away the more I was reading it was just how, how strong the structure of the novel is. And I think, you know, we were talking in the last episode and we talked another time about this idea of being in the presence of the spirit. And as much of that, as, as much as that is born in the moment of inspiration, I think, and again, just from my experience, the things that have the most lasting impact for me are things that are structured well, that the more you look at them, the more layers there are to them. Um, and it, it leads to the feeling of complexity, but in actual, when you actually break it down, it's very simple. You know, I've, I've talked to my friend Matt about this idea as well. Matt Evans, our MVP of the podcast, that I think the greatest art, and I think it comes from this idea of the motive also, I think the greatest art starts from very simple beginnings, but everything that's layered on top, about, layered on top of that stems from these very simple germinal ideas. Um, uh, I feel like a fucking, like I'm being eggheadish, but it's like you think about like a Beethoven symphony. Ba 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 bum, ba 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 bum. It's two notes. Bum 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 bum. You can and Beethoven writes an entire symphony out of it. You know what I mean? It's just that single motive gets through every single permutation that Beethoven can wring from it. Um, and even things that may not be entirely entertaining, you still feel on some level that they are just sort of important pieces of art, like the Wagner ring cycle, those operas, they're kind of boring. And yet there's something about them that really sticks with you. Um, and it's because they have this rich structure. Um, you could be bored by it, but the form is what I think lends it a lot of heft and weight. Um, for the same reason that you could read, you can, you know, you can hear an opera, you could read something that, um, may look and sound a lot like it, but it's not going to have the same impact because it doesn't have the skeletal structure beneath it to sort of hold it up. Um, and I'm just sort of thinking out loud, but other, other people that have talked a lot about form, I mean, I think David Foster Wallace um, has said that actually the, the, the structure that he intended for Infinite Jest was actually, I don't know, kind of destroyed in the editing. You know, if he had really 
carried out the structure of the novel the way he intended, it would have been like twice as long or something like that. So I think he describes it as being sort of, I don't know if he called it a tesseract or a dodecahedron, or he, he, he alluded to some sort of mathematic structure or something, but that it's actually kind of a lopsided version of that because of the editing. But I still think the thing that carries you through a novel like Infinite Jest, even though the stories sometimes uh, don't seem as connected as uh, you know one would hope, I think what really sort of carries you through it is, and, and, and really, I don't know, keeps you confident that you're sort of in the hands of an artist is the form. And uh, I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of blabbering about it because, uh, look, I, I've read the novel three times now, but I, I haven't really given it enough time to really um, digest it. But uh, I guess I'm saying if you're looking for a reading recommendation and you haven't read Slaughterhouse Five in a while, or if you're reading it for the first time, I, I really recommend it. It was, uh, like I said, I read it three times in the last week, and I, I, in all likelihood, I'll probably give it an, another throw also. Um, but yeah, I feel like Fight Club is the same way. That's one of those movies that I think you can watch it, and I think we were talking about this in terms of Christopher Nolan last week also, but you can watch it, and it's just entertainment, and that's fine, and you can get something out of it. But Fight Club is one of those movies that the more you watch it, the more the more you see in it. And I'm wondering if I'm kind of well, I'm kind of wondering if I should even bring this up, but this goes back to life being spooky. Like why are all these things happening all of a sudden? But literally as I was and I'm not supposed to be saying literally, but as I was in the middle of Slaughterhouse Five for the second time, some person from my past uh posted something on Facebook. Um, I don't know. I think they were celebrating some, um, I don't know, some, something's going on in their life. I really didn't read the, the words that were attached to it, but the photo that they posted, it's always kind of one of these vanity photos. Like people want to celebrate themselves and it's not entirely clear if it's really the event they want to celebrate or they have this picture of themselves that they want to post. And so they, they have to sort of scramble for some meaningful, um, uh, I don't know, text to sort of attach to it, but be that as it may. The photo they had their wrist is sort of pointed to the camera, and I see the phrase, so it goes, tattooed on their wrist. And I have to believe that this is from Slaughterhouse-Five. But the reason I'm thinking of this, and I don't, I don't want to skewer this person, because I honestly don't know why they have it tattooed on their wrist. Um, and maybe I'll bring this back to Chuck Palahniuk in some ways, too, but... Like Fight Club, I think it gets referenced in popular culture. Um, I, I feel like people stop just short of what the takeaway of the novel really is. Or it, I should say the movie, rather. Because, um, uh, like I said, I read the novel once. And I have another copy. I'm, I'm probably going to read it here in the next week. But um, of the movie, I'll say. Um, you know, I think people stop short of, of uh, just short of what the real takeaway is. Because when people quote Fight Club or when they point to their favorite scenes or when they... I don't know, they sort of reference it in popular culture. The scenes they point to are the sort of Tyler Durden-isms, right? The sort of great moments um, when, uh, you know, the anonymous protagonist, Edward Norton's character, uh, who's unnamed in the movie, probably in the book also, um, he's sort of in the middle of his sort of Tyler Durden uh, proselytizing, right? Or his, evangel- his, his, his being evangelized to the Tyler Durden way of life. Tyler Durden has all these great quotes where he says, like, you know, self-improvement is masturbation. Now, self-destruction, you know, that's something. Um, 
And uh, and as Edward Norton is sort of buying into all this, he has a lot of great isms or little things that he says also. And those are the things that people quote. But I think what they lose is that um, ultimately what Tyler Durden is preaching sort of evolves into anarchy. And people who really give themselves over to it become, although it looks very different, they kind of become the thing that they hate. Um, you know, in wanting to... Uh, rebel in wanting to go against the system, they create their own system, you know, that is uh, not sustainable or something like that. Um, but there's something about seeing that phrase, so it goes, tattooed on this person's wrist, that made me kind of feel the same way. You know, I- I'll have to think more deeply on it. But even though Slaughterhouse Five is sort of an anti war novel, even though every time death uh, is spoken of, um, it's addressed with this sort it's, it's, it's sort of followed by this phrase, so it goes. And even though the Trophimadorians are sort of presented as these sort of enlightened beings, um, you know, who experience the world in four dimensions and sort of pity earthlings for experiencing their lives and themselves in this very, you know, comparatively limited dimension where they they worry about death, they worry about the end of the world, they worry about war, the Trophimadorians are sort of presented as being enlightened. So they don't really concern themselves with these things. Um, Every moment is what it is, and... There's even a moment where, you know, in his ignorance, Billy Pilgrim, as he's on the planet of Trophimador, he sort of looks at the aliens and he says, you know, how do you do it? How does such an advanced, how does a civilization last as long as yours does without destroying themselves? I come from Earth. We're awful. We, um, you know, we're in the middle of World War II. Uh, we're killing each other. We, uh, we do these horrible things to each other and we're, we're always on the brink of destroying ourselves. How does your society sort of continue on as it does and they just sort of like shake their heads at him and uh and he even asks he says how does the universe end and the trial from dorian say well that's easy we destroy it you know in our search to come up with more efficient fuel one of our guys sort of presses a button and, and poof the universe ends and he asks them well why don't you stop him and again they shake their head and they just say that's it, it, it we it, it is what it is he's always pressed the button he always will press the button the moment is structured that way I mean, in a way, it kind of reminds me of what I was talking about last week, about this sort of, you know, I sort of alluded, I I sort of looked at Tolstoy when I talk about it, but this idea that there's this great work being carried out by the cosmos, um, you know, and we're just sort of uh, mediums for it, right? Uh, Maybe it is a sort of Trophimadorian idea, like the the moments are what they are because they're structured that way. There's really nothing you can do about them. Um, And yet... And yet, I, I just, there's a part of me too as I read that in Slaughterhouse, Slaughterhouse-Five where I, I have to sort of remind myself that Vonnegut is a satirist, you know, and it just doesn't sit right in your mouth. Even, these, uh, even in these moments where the Trophimadorians are sort of relaying this information, there seems something delusional about it also. It's just there's something very unsatisfying about that perspective, and and I don't know what it is. I, I'm not quite sure what the takeaway of the novel is yet, except it, it's it's definitely anti-war. Um, and even though so much of the story is told with this sort of apathy, um, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there is this sort of... Um, I mean, I guess it makes sense when you finish the novel, you want to start it over, because there is this sort of circular, almost really kind of an infinite like nature to the narrative, par- partly because it deals with time in that way. But 
um, it ends, you know, in the beginning of the novel, it talks about, you know, uh, you know, after a massacre on the battlefield, the birds are really the only thing that are there. And what do they, what do they have to say in response? You know, they, they just sort of tweet, right? And the way that it's written is pooty tweet or something like that. And at the end of the novel, that's exactly how it ends. It's at, after a massacre and Billy Pilgrim sort of steps out of the slaughterhouse where he's sort of been um, uh, bunkered, which is what saves his life. And the first thing he hears is a bird going pooty tweet. And it just makes me think, well, what can you say? You know, maybe part of our human reaction is we sort of adopt these philosophies or these uh, perspectives to sort of rationalize the crazy experiences that we have. Um, But at the end of the day, what sense can we really make of them? And so I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what the answer to that is. But uh, anyway, as I'm talking about it, it feels pretty half-baked. I I still think I have to, um, I still feel like I have to think about it more. But yeah, I don't know, something about form that seems important to me. But yeah, this one of my brother saying, you know, I read it three times in the last week, and him saying, you know, it's not that you're on the spectrum, but you, you are on a spectrum. Even the fact that I've read it three times now, and I've sort of uh, marked it up, and me th- even thinking about wanting to make a Google Sheet with like... Uh, a list of, you know, what, at least what I think the motives of Slaughterhouse-Five are. There is that element, again, to my thinking that I always encounter, which is, like, like I think there's going to be some test at some point. Like, it's not, it's not just enough to have read the book. It's, like, I have to understand every aspect of it. As if at some point on my... I don't know. Like, on my deathbed, I'm a, there's going to be, like, a... I don't know, some great, S, or a great uh, exam on all the books that I've read in my life, and I have to really show that I understood them. I mean, I talk about this in therapy. I Actually, it kind of came up in an interview I was giving someone else, but we were sort of having this conversational moment. And I I don't know if I've, I had, have said it this clearly at other times in my life, but I was saying, you know, for the last year, um, one thing I've really struggled with is really understanding what I want for myself. Um, I have a very strong sense of should. I always know what I should be doing. And I'm not saying that that should is, is even accurate. I'm just saying, in my own mind, I usually have a very strong uh, sense of what I think I should be doing, or what I think others think I should be doing, and that is uh, that's something that I wield very easily against myself. But when it comes to want, I I honestly, generally don't have a good sense of what that is, um, and so I guess that sort of is is rearing its head even as I think about. Slaughterhouse Five, which is, I'm not even sure I want to read it a fourth a fourth time as much as I feel like I should, you know, like I really need to understand it. Uh, and I guess I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. On the one hand, I feel like I, you know, there's something I need to learn from it. Like, like I feel like the cosmos put this book in front of me for a reason, and I'm drawing something from it. And I guess I worry that. It's in front of me now, and if I don't get what I need out of it in this moment, that I'm just going to move on to something else and never see it. I mean, I guess in the same way that I thought, oh, I've, I've read it before. I mean, there were moments that I do remember. There's this very vivid image when Billy Pilgrim is, is I guess, first captured by the German, and he's placed on these train 
these train cars with a bunch of other people. And they're all sort of packed in there and they're fed bread. And he describes, you know, each train car has a ventilator. And he sort of sees the, the or imagines the, the train cars as these sort of organisms unto them, themselves where the soldiers sort of put food into it. And then the soldiers have to sort of toss their uh, fecal matter out through the ventilator. And they take turns standing and sitting inside. And, you know, the people standing inside the train cars, are they're basically like these plants that are rooted uh into like he describes it as like a belching farting snoring soil of people just sort of laying down and that image i remember and i remember something about the alien abduction um but yeah otherwise when you're younger especially me i was like a really voracious reader even thinking about murakami reading all of his novels they're so so much of it I don't remember. And that's fine. Um, I guess there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but... <sighs> there's also a part of me sometimes that thinks, I wish I was less widely read and more specialized in my reading. You know, I wish... Maybe instead of reading all of Dostoevsky's novels, I wish I understood... Maybe I should understand one of them as well as I can. You know? And so I guess I get... My mind starts going down these things where I think, you know, I'm going to read... I guess it's like my time with Beethoven and Brahms. Like, it's not just enough to um, listen to one piece of Beethoven. I, I literally had to spend... And I'm not supposed to be saying literally, but... I spent a year of my life listening to nothing but Beethoven. I spent a year of my life listening to nothing but Brahms. And uh, I'm not saying I'm going to do the same thing with Vonnegut, but I am saying I do get this kind of momentum with things. And I think that's what, that's what my brother is saying, by not being on the spectrum, but on a spectrum. Which is like, I... I don't want to say I give myself over to this, because at the same time... I'm reading this book, and I'm working, and I'm going to school, so I'm definitely doing other things, but I, at least creatively, or I don't know what you want to call it, I give a big part of myself over to this novel, and I give it a lot of power. Um, I don't know, even as I'm saying that, I'm not even sure I believe all of that. Um, yeah, I don't know, I think I'm just trying to identify that... <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of what I enjoy. I kind of enjoy spending my time doing that. But I also think if I, if I had to be brutally honest, I, I think I also give a lot of that time to things I think I should be doing. Not necessarily things I want to be doing, but things I think I should be doing. And I'm not always sure where the should comes from as I'm picking my nose. But like reading the Bible. You know, I spent over a year reading the Bible every day until I read the whole thing cover to cover, including the Apocrypha. And it's like, now that that's happened, I guess... I get to say I read the Bible, which I <laughs> I don't think most people who say they believe in the Bible have done. But also, how well do I know the Bible? You know, not very well. I think I'd be in a much better place if if what I want is to have, if I do this because I want to have some sort of demonstrable takeaway or some, you know, to be able to demonstrate some level of understanding of something, you know, when it comes to something like the Bible, it probably would have been a lot better if I had picked like six books out of the Bible and read those for a year, 
right? Or even just one. If I had just read Genesis, which to me was probably, other than parts of the New Testament, I would say probably, you know, the most interesting part of the Bible. Um, if instead of taking a whole year and reading the Bible, if you had just read Genesis over and over again, um, or different translations, or different uh, interpretations, or biblical commentaries, or whatever it is. But if you just focused on understanding one book of the Bible uh, for one year, you probably would have more uh, to take away from it. So, I don't know. (laughs) Again, maybe that's another thing I should do, but is it something I necessarily want to do? I feel like there are things in my life, I definitely know what I don't want to do, oftentimes, and I definitely know what I should do. But if you put a gun to my head, I'm, I'm... it sounds crazy, but I don't really know what I want to do most of the time. I mean, this week, by the time I speak to you next week, I hope I will have read Fight Club. Um, and I'm not even sure I want to read it as much as I feel like I should read it. You know, so anyway, but yeah, I guess, uh, what else comes up for me? I, I think one thing I was thinking about during the week that I, I think was one of the major reasons I wanted to talk about this sort of Brad Easton Ellis and and Chuck Palahniuk interview in the first place was there was a moment that was actually kind of humbling for me. Um, or I guess this was, which was sort of surprising because, uh, I'm not necessarily surprised that I can be a bit of a snob. But I remember on an entirely different episode, I was talking about Chuck Palahniuk. And one thing I was saying is, um, a part of it is that I'm just a contrarian. So when I see everyone doing something, I don't want to do it. So, you know, back in like the early 2000s, when all of my friends who didn't read were reading Chuck Palahniuk, first I had read Fight Club and thought it wasn't very good. So I already thought I was going to poo-poo this guy. But when everybody I know who didn't read was reading him, I thought, oh, well, he definitely is not good. You know, I mean, it was sort of like the Da Vinci Code, like nobody reads and then a book like the Da Vinci Code comes out or Twilight or whatever the fuck and everybody reads it and loves it. But if you're a reader or if you fancy yourself a reader like I do, if you ever get around to it, you, th- you kind of think it's shit, you know, and uh, that's just how I felt with Chuck Palahniuk. And lo and behold, in this interview, I was kind of humbled slash maybe validated in some ways, but also... Um, it gave me pause, which is when Chuck Palahniuk was talking about his writing, he said very explicitly that that is the writer he wants to be. That's like exactly what he's going for, is he wants to write the kind of things... You know, he and Brett Easton Ellis make this very, I think, great observation, which is not something I... I, I when, when they say it, I recognize it, but it's not something I really articulated. But, you know, to be a successful writer, uh, especially in, in their heyday... You know, there was only a couple ways to do it. You know, you had to be a sort of uh, postmodernist like Pynchon or, or even like a David Foster Wallace, right? Or you had to be, you know, a sort of Joan Didion, you know, or a John Irving. Um, uh, you know, there was, there was literary authors, right? Um, but they wanted to do something very different. And, but Chuck Palahniuk wanted to be that. He wanted to be the writer that a young person could pick up and read and, and think, oh, I didn't even know books could be like this, right? And maybe it was something that the literary institution or whatever like was not going to celebrate, but that's what he wanted. He wanted to be, uh, he wanted to write books for people who didn't read. And um, 
Yeah, it was just interesting. I mean, in some ways, it makes me sort of check myself, right? Because I spend... I mean, I guess I, I sort of justify what I do because it's part of my podcast. It's part of my own output. But yeah, I, I criticize things, right? Um, but I guess I feel like there might be a bit of a double standard because, look, I see the iTunes reviews. I know there's a handful of people who fucking hate this podcast. Um, you know, look, we have a lot of people who listen to the podcast. That's great. And, you know, the reviews that people write are just that. You know, the people who are the most vocal or the people who want to spend a lot of time skewering a podcast... One, I don't think they're right. I also don't trust their judgment. But it's also what they're wanting this podcast to be clearly is not what it is. It's not even what I want it to be. So if you're going to spend a lot of time wanting it to be something else, you're just kind of wasting your time. Why don't you spend that time looking at something, that you, looking for the thing that you want, I guess is what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is obviously there's some defensiveness that comes from that also. Right. So I think I'm just trying to point out this part, like on the one hand, as a creator, I know I'm doing exactly what I want. And um, I guess it was just humbling or refreshing to like hold this criticism of Chuck Palahniuk and be like, oh, well, people I know who weren't real readers with a capital R didn't, you know, liked him. And so therefore it was, um, you know, books written for the unwashed masses or for the uninitiated and to have or to hear him say, that's exactly what I'm going for. And so you think, oh, shit. Yeah, well, there you go. He's hitting his home run. Rather than being critical of it, I guess I should take a lesson from it. And actually, maybe I'm just drawing this conclusion now. Ooh, I think a couple things are coming together. When I listen to Brett Easton Ellis and uh, Chuck Palahniuk talk, you know, Brett Easton Ellis is sort of situated, he's sort of strangely situated. And I think maybe some people, if they had to classify him, might even put him, like, I heard this new phrase, um, the intellectual dark web. I've heard it thrown around, but I had never really seen how all these people are tied together. I was not surprised some people who were a part of it, like Jordan Peterson, but that Sam Harris is actually considered part of this intellectual dark web is fucking insane to me. It just shows you how how much the left has changed, at least in the last... I don't know, 15 years that I've, I've known Sam Harris. I mean, it's just insane to me that he's now labeled as sort of like an alt-right person. But, um, um, but I bet you could probably put Brett Easton Ellis in that category also because he's very anti-social justice warrior. Um, he just, I could see him ruffling uh, a lot of feathers. And so even though I may not like their creative output, I bet what I'm responding to when I hear them both talking is that they both believe in themselves. You know, they both know what they want creatively. And even though I'm probably not a part of Chuck Palahniuk's audience, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that he has an influence. Because, you know, he's no, he knows exactly what he's going for. And I, th- I guess I'm, tr- I don't, hope I'm not forcing, but I'm trying to bring these two points together, which is, you know, if you know why you're doing something, it will have an impact. And it's not going to be for everybody, but you will find your audience. But I guess in some ways I'm only saying, I guess what I'm trying to say, and I guess I'm speaking to myself when I say this, is that the important part is you have to know what you're going for. You know, you can't be all things to all people. And it sounds like an obvious point to make. And it's the type of thing that I think you can think your way to And it may even almost sound inevitable, but I think when you're trying to create art or when you're trying to create anything, well, 
again, maybe I shouldn't sort of uh, um, project this onto other people. Maybe I should just speak from my own experience. But for me, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I think the one of the hardest things in my creative life, and I think even in my personal life, I'm starting to, to understand very clearly, is it's very hard for me to know what I want. You know, and I, I worry that I get stuck in this you know, I always have the image of like, if you're jumping from one, one rooftop to another, you have to just sort of make the leap. And it's if you sort of stutter step or second guess yourself right before the jump, you know, it's, it's fucking perilous. You know, that's when you get hurt. That's when you don't clear the distance is when you, you know, when you hesitate. And, um, I don't know. I don't want to be too definitive, but I, I, I just wonder if it's, I think it's been something I've struggled with for, for, for most of my personal life, for most of my creative life. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I sort of feel like I always bring things back to never-ending story, but it's like when, when uh, Atreyu is running through one of the oracles and uh, Bastion's sort of screaming into the book, Be confident! Be confident! And actually, if you remember the sequel, which was fucking god-awful, but there was a sequel, and I think there's even a third installment of Neverending Story, which I've never seen, but the the, the second one, um, and I think the actor who, who was in that is, is actually dead now, um, but he's like scared of the high dive. Ooh, this is interesting. Yeah, in Neverending Story 2, he's like scared of the high dive, and that's sort of like, at the beginning of the novel, he sort of, ch- or at the beginning of the movie, rather, he chickens out and sort of climbs down the uh, the diving board, and then at the end, he sort of has to jump into, I don't jump off a waterfall or some shit to show that he's conquered his fears. But it actually reminds me, I'll feel stupid if I've already talked about this, but the New York Times came out with this thing a long time ago where they showed this high dive, and they sort of rigged this, it was at like some public pool probably, and they had rigged it with cameras and microphones, and they just sort of filmed people who would walk up to the high dive and just sort of film the, the sort of drama they had with themselves as they were sort of standing at, uh, at the top there. And it was really, really crazy and really sort of surprising because, one, you sort of completely relate to people. If you've ever stood on a, uh, I don't know, a high diving board or, I don't know, rock jumping or anything like that, um, you know what it's like to stand and to sort of have that window of opportunity where you're scared, but you're just on the brink of doing it. Or maybe you run to the edge but stop short, but there's still the possibility that you'll that you'll do it. And then we all know the feeling too of just chickening out. And it's not just jumping off the diving board, it's a lot of things in our life. It could be telling that person that we have a crush on that we like them. There's just a window of opportunity that if we don't strike the the window closes on that opportunity. And there's a there's an absurdity to still being uh to still sort of swimming in those feelings right? We, we've now officially are embarrassing ourselves by how long we're sort of sitting in this. And, we, and at some point, we know we're not going to do it. And yet, it's like the window of opportunity has closed, but we're still uh, have a chokehold on the possibility that our confidence might return, right? So you have this thing with the New York Times where you're watching people waffle on the fucking waffle with their courage and their confidence on the, uh, on the high dive. And the craziest part too is you know, some people who go up there who you think are going to do it, the sort of macho guys or whatever, they're the ones who chicken out. And the people who actually have the courage to do it, you know, there's an older woman who does it. It's like a senior citizen. She does it. There's a girl who's like 
like she looks like she's like six or seven years old who jumps off and does it. And then there's people, you know, who look like they could be swimmers themselves or athletes, you know, who just sort of chicken out and just sort of walk down uh, the diving board. And who knows? Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's edited to be that way. But that's, you know, at least as it exists, that's sort of how it plays out. Yeah. So what am I saying in all this? Yeah, I don't know. Something about just knowing what you want. Um, clarity of vision. And maybe what I respond to in Slaughterhouse-Five is when you see a structure that, that that is that developed, you know, when you spend time with something and you comb over it, not just once or twice, but three times at least. I mean, there's two takeaways. One, when you see structure that strong, you really realize, oh, this person's really thought about it. You know, and before you brush that off as like, oh, duh. But I mean, you know, there are plenty of people write novels and, and not all of them stand up to that kind of scrutiny. You know, Slaughterhouse-Five is a classic. And look, there's plenty of novels and pieces of art that sort of trade on aesthetics or whatever. But I don't know. Maybe I'm, yeah, maybe I'm just blowing smoke up my own theory here. But I, I would bet that a lot of it has to do with the form. Um, and it's not something that everybody who reads it is going to understand or see or even acknowledge. But, um, I think part of the reason, uh, that anybody who reads it will just sort of feel carried by it or swept along by the story is because the structure is so strong. But the other part too is, is that you need to, you don't really begin to understand things until you spend more time with them. It's kind of discouraging actually, because you read Slaughterhouse-Five once and you may enjoy it, but if you don't go back, you're not really going to understand it. There's no, like, who was the, um, who was the film critic? Um, gosh, she was very, uh, very famous. Actually, I think she's even re- referenced in I've Been Thinking of Many Things. I can't remember her name. And actually, Brett Easton Ellis was a, a very, very much influenced by her. Um, gosh, I'm going to kick myself for not being able to think of this. Um, but, uh, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. But the point is, is she, um, would only see movies once and then write her reviews. And she sort of prided herself. Um, I'm both trying to talk and recall her name at the same time, which is fucking frustrating. But, um, she would only see movies once and then write these reviews on them that were like canonical. Like she had schools of, of filmmakers and, and film fans who sort of took her, reviews as gospel, right? Like the top, the type of influence where, um, I don't know, maybe like a Jordan Peterson, or I'm I'm trying to think of, you know, like a sort of public thinkers who have that kind of, maybe even Sam Harris or, you know, people just sort of take their words as gospel. And if you encounter them socially, you know, if you're not careful, you'll hear someone at a party just sort of spouting off uh, this person's review as if it's their own take on something when really it's just some, you know, it's this thing that they read and, and decided that that that's their opinion also. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm really good at that. I can't remember her name. Um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll just bring it up on the next podcast. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is there's no way that you can understand a movie like Fight Club or a real, a real film, the Citizen Kane, uh, trying to think of other equally complex movies. Anyway, just movies that have a lot of layers to them. You know, there's just no way that you can understand them after watching them once. Um, There's just too much to take in. I mean, I guess the simple 
thing would be, you know, you read Slaughterhouse-Five once and you can understand the, the plot, right? And you may have noticed a couple things that sort of stand out, and you may intuit on some level that there's some there's some structural things happening on a deeper level. But unless you go back, you're not going to really be able to understand that. It's like you really need to know what the plot is and be familiar with it so that you can look to other things, right? And then even the third time that you look at it, you're just going to see more and more, and you just you just can't take in everything, even after three readings, you know? Uh, when you're dealing with an artist like Vonnegut who has spent, I don't know how much time they spent on the novel, but a lot of time, um, and even the, it's not even how much time they spent on that novel. It's how much time they spent on all the novels they wrote leading up to that, up to that, all the experience they can draw on to sort of bear on whatever they're looking at at that time. Um, anyway, does this make sense? Am I just sort of fucking babbling here? I have to believe it does. Maybe I'm just making a mountain out of a molehill. Maybe you already know this stuff, and I'm just sort of talking out of my ass here. <clears throat> yeah, speaking of movies, though, I watched this movie. Um, I got off work on like Thursday night at midnight, and uh, I don't know. I, 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 are you like me, where you have you subscribe to way too many streaming services? Like I have Netflix, I have Hulu, I have Amazon Prime, I have HBO, and it's like I never watch really any of them, you know, I'll sort of go into Netflix for a little bit, um, and it's like, I don't know, it's just, it's funny to me now that I ever, that I, I can never think, oh, there's nothing to watch, when I have an unlimited amount of streaming content at my fingertips, but for whatever reason, I was looking at HBO, and of all the things I could have watched, whether it's Game of Thrones, or The Wire, or Sopranos, I stumble, or I see this cover, rather. It's probably because it's Halloween, but I see the cover of this movie, this Japanese film called Onibaba. And I remember, you know, there's so many movies now, even like, uh, I'm trying to think of something like um, Basic Instinct, or there's just a whole bunch of movies that I know only because, not that I've ever seen them, I mean, I have seen Basic Instinct, but I'm just trying to say, this movie Onibaba was like other movies, which I, I know they exist, not because I've seen them, or even by reputation, but because when I was a kid and you used to go to the video store, you used to just see all the covers, you know? And if you were like me, and I think we went to the video store like every weekend and we'd get like three movies, you become so familiar with the repertoire, like, or what is out there, you know? It was sort of like going to bookstores, you know, there was, or even classical music or something. I don't know whether it was music or books or movies. You kind of knew what was out there or what you're supposed to be reading because you would literally see the body of work. You know, um, you may have never read Charles Dickens, but you could judge by the amount of real estate he took up at Barnes and Noble that he was, you know, someone that you might want to, that you might need to know about at some point, right? And so even as you're, if you're just looking through the fiction and literature section, you're just sort of ingesting a bunch of names and covers and book titles that if someone brings it up, you just kind of know it exists. Now the only thing we see is what Amazon recommends to us, you know? And, and even that, I think, sort of just washes over us. And I think we don't really trust it, too, because they're just trying to sell us stuff half the time. Um, but I just feel like whether it was movies or books or music even, there was just this sort of... I don't know, understanding of what was out there just because your eyes literally had to, f and I'm not supposed to be saying literally, but your eyes actually had 
to sort of move over these things every time you went to to search for whatever you were looking for at the bookstore, even if it was Stephen King. Um, uh, where am I going with this? Oh, Oni Baba, yes. Yeah. So I, I, at some point I had seen the cover for this movie, Oni Baba, and I sort of look it up on HBO and I'm like, it's an old black and white Japanese movie. It's from like 1967, I think, or 69 rather, and it's like, it's sort of incredible that it's still in black and white, but um, it was. And uh, I don't know what to say about it, except it's this really weird story about this mother and her daughter-in-law, you know, this uh, younger woman who was married to her son, and they're living in some part of Japan, some rural farming area, while there's this war going on. Um, And the way that they make money is either they find soldiers who are dead in the field and they steal their uh, armor and their swords and they sell them for grain, or they lure samurais into this little pit that they have where they fall and they die, they crawl and take their stuff and then sell it. And a friend of her son's, this older woman, a friend of her son sort of returns without him and relates the story about how her her son died in battle. And so now uh, this guy lives nearby in a hut, but here you have this older woman and her daughter-in-law, now widowed, or sort of living together in these desperate times where they're stealing samurai's clothing for, for grain. And uh, now this woman's widowed, and she has this friend of her husband who's now returned to war who's sort of... Um, how do we say, uh, you know, he wants her now. He's sort of flirting with her. He's sort of chasing after her. He's, um, yeah, he wants her. <laughs> and, uh, and she sort of starts to succumb to him. And so they start having this affair. And uh, the older woman, they kind of, they do it very interestingly. It's both, she's protective of her daughter-in-law because this guy's kind of scuzzy and kind of slimy. And yet there are times where they allude and kind of play with the idea that on some level she's jealous also. That in her older age, she kind of misses companionship, right? And there's something about their young lust and love for each other that is kind of sad to her. You know, that that season of her life is sort of closed. And yet there's something kind of like overarchingly evil about her too. But it's a sort of a, it's sort of a weird, I don't know, it's, a weird, uh, it's just a weird dynamic. And so she ends up, like, encountering the samurai who wears this really weird mask. It's sort of spooky-looking mask. And she lures him to this pit and crawls in there and steals his mask. And she tries to deter her daughter-in-law from continuing to see this guy by wearing this mask. And as she goes to sneak out to see him in the middle of the night, she sort of jumps out and presents herself to this woman as, like, a demon and, like, tries to scare her away from seeing this guy. And uh, as I'm telling you this, I don't know why I'm telling you the story. Um, cause I guess you won't need to see the movie now, but the movie sort of ends with, uh, because of the weather is what they're saying. The mask has, she, she's not able to take the mask off. And, uh, it kind of reminded me of a couple things. This idea of the mask we wear, we're not able to take it off. It reminded me of, uh, uh, did you ever read goosebumps? That was like, when I look back on my childhood and my reading, I realized I was, so, I was in so many different places at once because, you know, I was, I don't know, I read a lot when I was a kid. I mean, I remember being in like, I mean, I was reading Macbeth when I was in like first grade. Um, and yet at the same time, I was reading Goosebumps, you know, or I was reading Stephen King's Misery when I was in second grade, but I was also reading Goosebumps, you know, so I had a lot of range in terms of what I was reading, but it reminded me of The Haunted Mask was like one of the books in the Goosebump series. 
And I, Dan, I wouldn't be surprised if it was sort of taken from Onibaba. And then the other thing, I think it would have to... I think this person would have had to have come before the movie was made. I'll have to look into this, but there's the French, the French mime Marcel Marceau, which when I say it is a name that I would assume that people would know, but I'm actually surprised at how many people don't know Marcel Marceau. And I guess I'm one of the lucky people. I actually got to see him perform before he died. Um, I was going to this performing arts. I think I saw him when I was just going to their summer program, but Anyway, I saw Marcel Marceau perform there, and I don't remember too much of the performance except, you know, the general layout of it. And I remember he did this scene where he was clearly at the zoo, and he's just sort of going around at the zoo, and it's just insane to me how someone with no set and just being a mime could paint this whole picture of you across the entire stage just like being at the zoo. But, um, and I don't think he performed this piece, but one of his most famous pieces you could Google it. It's probably, you could probably do Marcel Marceau, the mask, and you'll see it. He does this thing where he's sort of putting on the happy, sad face, and uh, he puts the happy face on at one time, and he can't get it off. And so it's this kind of comical slash sad slash kind of scary sequence where he's trying to rip the smiley face off, but he's he's both holding the smiley face with his own facial features and yet his physicality is like terror and it's just one of those brilliant things that you think about and i'm not saying it's like you know the who's the french guy who walked across the tightrope on the world trade center you know i'm not saying that it's not that kind of consciousness raising thing but there is something when you see that where you just think that is fucking truly inspired you know it's almost like Harry Houdini coming out of the straitjacket. You see this person, this mime, do something like this, and it's, I don't know, maybe Marcel Marceau knows, knows something and he's drawing on something else that I don't know about, but when you see it for the first time, it's just fucking unbelievable. You know, you think, how much time does somebody commit to something like that where they have that control of their physicality? They're holding this absurd, exaggerated smile on their face while their physicality is uh is terror and they're trying to rip this mask off and it's just uh i don't know it's unbelievable oh yeah so what's your homework for the week your homework is to order a copy of slaughterhouse five yourself uh you have to look up marcel marceau you have to rewatch fight club and hell you want to reread it with me let's do that i'm going to read it this week if you happen to have a copy of fight club at your house. It's a short book. You could probably read it in one sitting. Maybe two. But let's see if by the time we meet next week, uh, meet next week, we can't be, uh, I don't know, we'll have a meeting of the minds about Fight Club. Otherwise, what's going on? I don't know. I took a couple notes throughout the week. Nothing, nothing really to, nothing that really feels inspired to talk about. But I had this moment, I was studying for anthropology. I had this uh, exam for anthropology. And one thing that came up, not topically, it was just a photo from the textbook that I saw. Um, it was, uh, you know, there's the caste system in India, and there's people who sort of protest the caste system, and they think it's unjust. And um, I think India is kind of like we are in the rest of the world, where it's, you know, it's, I guess, caste discrimination is technically illegal, but how do you really enforce it, right? So even though the caste system seems outdated, it's, you know, it still very much uh, plays a part in, you know, what do you call it? Social politics of many of the same way racism does here in the United States. But 
I saw people, there's a photo in our book of people protesting the caste system, and they had tape over their mouth. And I just, I never really thought about it before, but why does every form of protest have people with tape over their mouth? You know, it's like no matter what people protest, they put tape over their mouth. You see it with people who are pro-life, you know, who are anti-abortion. It's like everybody stands in a ring and they fucking hold hands and they have tape over their mouth. And it's like, what does that mean? You're protesting. You know, why, why do you have tape over your mouth? Why silence? You know, and talk about range, too. You can be anti-caste. You can be uh, anti-abortion. You can be, uh, you know, anti-bulldozing the, the rainforest. And yet everybody shows up to a protest with tape over their mouth. Except for one person. They always deputize one person with a megaphone who says, What do we want? Blah. When do we want it? Now. Yeah, protests are funny that way. First of all, nobody does anything until, you know, somebody shows up with cameras and then everybody snaps into action. But it's also, you feel bad for protesters because it's like they got one phrase and it's like they're just going to say it for hours. And it's like, you know, after like 30 seconds, everybody's like, oh, fuck. Is this really what we're doing? What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. All right. All right. We get it. <clears throat> you want justice now. Jeez. It's almost like when you go to a concert and then like, you know, the singer starts doing the clapping thing along to the rhythm and the audience starts doing it. Nobody does it for more than 30 fucking seconds because it's lame. Everybody gives up. You know, you start the song and you're like, all right, everybody, clap your hands. Here we go. Halfway through the first verse, everybody fucking gives up because nobody wants to really do this for three and a half minutes. Nobody wants to clap their hands for three and a half min- minutes, let alone chant the same thing over and over, over again for hours. You know, it's like people want to chain themselves to bulldozers for like weeks at a time. And it's like, are you really just going to chant this over and over again? By the end of it, you're just like, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? No. (laughs) All right. All right, that's stupid. All right. Oh, man. What else to say? I don't know. I wrote something about District 9. I think uh, I was sort of just, I don't know, I was just reflecting on this idea that came up about, you know, everybody who looks in the Bible, you know, they think that they're Jesus, or they, you know, they read about Moses and the Exodus, and uh, they they think that they're the Jews, right? And, uh, they're the ones in bondage and, and they're God's chosen people, but nobody ever thinks that they're the Pharaoh, right? Nobody thinks that they're the Pharisees. Nobody thinks that they're Judas. It's a very superficial, I don't know, biblical interpretation, right? Like, who is this book written for if not for most people, right? Like, why would this be a very instructive book if everybody who, if it just preached to the choir, Right? I mean, the reason religious allegory is powerful is because it has that kind of impact. You know? Just because you are Jewish doesn't mean that you are Moses in the desert with the chosen people. I mean, even his own people in that story specifically, like, sort of go against God. So maybe that's not the best example. But the, you know, the the allegory of, of Jesus and the Gospels, there's really only one person in it who's, like, good, and that's Jesus. Everybody else kind of betrays him and sort of fails. And so I think that's really should be the takeaway. It's not that you're Jesus and you're uh, persecuted by Pontius Pilate and Judas and the Pharisees. You, that's who you are. 
But I was sort of thinking about this in terms of the movie District 9. I think it probably came out in like 2009 or something, but that's sort of a funny movie because I actually, I heard in some commentary or something that the only reason that movie was made is they actually were supposed to make a movie version of Halo. And I don't know if the funding fell through or whatever, but they had all this pre-production and the the Halo movie wasn't going to be made. And so they were like, man, what are we going to do with all our pre-production or whatever? And so they just made District 9. And maybe that's a simplified version of it, but... You know, the movie that they ended up making was not the movie they set out to make. And yet, if you see District 9, it's so fucking good. And I think that that is a perfect example of a movie that tells the story that I'm talking about, which is somebody who thinks that they're the good guy, um, and then they realize, gosh, this is why that movie is so interesting. If you haven't seen District 9, it's about these alien invaders, prawns is what they're called in South Africa. It's obviously an allegory for apartheid, but I forget how they get... I think they're playing crash lands or they can't get home and so they get kind of enslaved. They're, they're aliens, but they basically get sort of colonialized by the Americans and uh, get put in this sort of, you know, this ghetto, this sort of District 9, this area where they all have to live. And then I think this guy's going in to do a, a census or something. They're trying to get a census of the prawn population. And through some, he gets some like, like some liquid or some container like sprays in his face. And at first he thinks that's nothing, but then he become he starts to become one of them. He starts to transform into one of them. And it's such an interesting movie because by the end of it, now that he is one of them and he realizes how people in his life are treating him, he realizes how unjustly the prawns have been treated. Um, and so he starts to fight for them. But it's sort of an interesting character arc when you think about it. It's not like there's a moment where he just sort of has this sort of moral epiphany, right? Or he sees some sort of event that he's otherwise um, a part of. I mean, in some ways, I wonder, you know, we talk about these movies like Avatar or something. They get sort of, or Stargate is one of these movies that I think of, which is basically you have like a white hero saving brown people, right? Um, um, I don't know if you call it, what do you call it? Um... I don't know, the sort of romanticization of ethnic cultures. But yeah, I don't know. It's sort of a trope you see. It's like, it's like white people saving, saving dark-skinned people or whatever. But what is it, does a movie like District 9 change that when you become that person, right? It's not just like through some injustice or some like Count of Monte Cristo situation where you're sort of being um, uh, framed for something you didn't do and so now you have to side with the resistance or whatever. You literally become one of them. And uh, I guess we don't really have time to go into it. I do see that we have to finish here. But um, it's just something to think about. The hero of the story who ultimately does the right thing, it's not because they had a moral epiphany. It's because through some chance encounter that they would probably reverse if they could, um, they are becoming the people that they formerly disliked. And through that, um, they come to understand them or feel compassion for them. And I think the only thing I'm trying to say is I think that's how life works. You know, it's not until we're in those situations where we're sort of forced, um, I don't know, until it happens to you, it's just, I'm not saying you're and you're a bad person for not understanding, but I just, I wonder sometimes, until it happens to us, until we're pitted in certain circumstances against our will, which we would certainly change if we could, um, I don't think we really understand what other people are going through. So anyway, all right, folks. In some ways, I felt like that episode, I talked the entire time, and yet I have no idea how effective it was. But that's not really for me to judge. That's for you to judge. So 
let's do this. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe, which you can do so on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take a minute, rate and review us. Give us five stars. Type a couple sentences about why you like the podcast and why others would also. And if you can think of one person in your life who you think would, <laughs> you think would like the podcast, send them your favorite episode. But that's it for now. That's it for this week. Uh, we'll revisit this topic and others next time. But until then, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And ciao for now.